scripture reading for tonight comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Galatians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. There the Apostle Paul writes, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Two of the greatest instruments that we use in service to God are the Word of God and prayer. Acts 6, verses 3 and 4. It is not possible to pray too much. But it's entirely in the realm of possibility to pray too little. A little later in our assembly tonight, we will have a special prayer on behalf of the Arredondo family. It's good to look out into the assembly and see our dear sister Ruthie here tonight by her sister Gina, and it's wonderful to see you, sister, and we are praying for you too, but we can look about and see God's blessing and grace in so many ways. Let's make sure that we pray. We can't pray too little. We can't. We can't pray too much. We can be guilty of praying too little, but we can't pray too much. Open your Bibles to Galatians 2. And really in Galatians chapter 1, the whole idea behind the chapter is this. Don't mess with the gospel. Don't mess with the gospel. But when you get to Galatians 2, the idea quite simply is this. Make sure you're living in step with the gospel. And when one isn't, you would think that there would be a conscientious spirit, that there would be a humble heart and a desire to make things right with God. I don't know if you've noticed it, but there are as many churches in Midland as there are restaurants. And that's saying something. Questions that ought to go through people's minds. Are all of these churches messing with the gospel? Are these churches in step with the truth? of the gospel. As we look at Galatians 2 tonight, it is really an expansion of Galatians 1 verses 11 and 12 and Galatians 1 and verse 16. In those verses, 
Paul indicates that his message did not come from man or through man, but by the revelation of God. Now when you stop and think about that, the idea is this. Paul is quick to say that the message, the revelation he received from God was independent of the revelation the twelve got. By that I mean the twelve got their revelation from God earlier. We think about the Spirit coming in Acts chapter 2. We think about the conversion of Saul, of Paul in Acts chapter 9. We put all of these events together and Paul himself tells us he was one born out of due season in 1 Corinthians 15, but he obtained mercy and grace by Jesus, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. But the message though independent of the twelve, the message is identical to the twelve. In other words, he did not give one gospel to the original twelve apostles and another gospel to the apostle Paul. But that is exactly what some of the opponents of Paul are saying about him. So he's kind of a second-rate apostle, and you know, you think about Peter and others being the apostles of the circumcision. They're really emphasizing Jewish people. Well, it may be that when Gentiles come to Jesus, we ought to emphasize their being circumcised too and keeping various aspects of the law. Paul saw this as messing with the gospel and as being out of step with the truth of the gospel. And so should we. Ready for Galatians 2 now? If we get the gospel wrong, we are enslaved again. If we get the gospel wrong, we are enslaved again. Think about that. Galatians chapter 2. Let's look at some scenes. The first scene occurs in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And this passage, Galatians 2, 1 through 5, deals with this. The gospel and freedom. The gospel and freedom. Paul gives us some of the specifics. Fourteen years later, I went to Jerusalem. I took with me... Barnabas, Mr. Encouragement, a person who had something of a Levitical background, a person who was Paul's traveling partner, and they did tremendous work with God. He takes Barnabas, but not just Barnabas, he takes Titus. And if the background of Barnabas is strongly Jewish, the background of Titus is just the opposite. He seems to be Gentile through and through in his background. He takes Titus with him. And evidently he's doing this and Titus is willing to be an object lesson. 
Because here is a man who has been saved by the blood of Jesus through the cross, through the grace of God, and his life has been transformed, and he has not been circumcised. Again, I was saying, these people are so radical in their teaching, they are saying, you've got to submit to a medical procedure if you're a male and a Gentile to really be right with God. Now that's about as clear as I can put it in mixed company. But you get the idea. Continuing in the passage, the key verses in this section are verses 4 and 5. Note that these teachers, these brethren, are not called, they are not called weak brethren. They are called false brethren. Do you see that in your particular version? And it seemed that they wanted to press the issue of Titus having to undergo circumcision. And Paul says that these false teachers creep in. And what they are doing is spying out the liberty that we have in Jesus that they might bring us into slavery. Mark that. Because this section, the first five verses, is about the gospel and freedom. And then Paul goes on to say, To whom we submitted, no, not for a moment that the truth of the gospel be not affected. In order that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see, the book of Galatians is about freedom. Freedom from sin, as I mentioned this morning. Freedom from the law of Moses, also mentioned this morning. Freedom from the traditions of men, also mentioned this morning. But freedom also from the law principle. Now here's what I mean by that. That the law, keeping law is the foundation or basis or means by which one is saved. The books of Romans and Galatians fly against that in every way. It is one thing to say one should respond to the grace of God in love and humility and a desire to do his will. It is another thing to say that the law principle is the foundation or basis or grounds of our salvation. What does that do to grace through faith? It perverts it. It distorts it. And while the word of God refers to the obedience of faith, Romans 1, 5, and 6, Romans 16, 25, and 26, the idea is a faith that works through love, Galatians 5 and verse 6. 
A faith that humbly responds to God and His will. After we have done all that we can, we are still unprofitable servants. Luke 17, verse 10. Our righteousness is as polluted garments, filthy rags. Isaiah 64, verse 6. So the principle of law is not the foundation or basis or grounds of anyone's salvation. God in his goodness and grace is as we trust him in humble, loving obedience. Number two, look at Galatians 2 verses 6 through 10. The singularity of the gospel. Galatians 2, verses 6 through 10. That's the second scene here in Galatians 2. You might compare this to the seven ones of Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. You might compare this to Ephesians 4, verse 3. Giving diligence, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It fits well. He meets... In Galatians 2, 6 through 10, with the pillars of the early church as he terms them, Peter, James, and John. Peter, the one who preached in Acts 2 to the people on the day of Pentecost. Peter, the one who preached to the Gentile family, Cornelius in his house. Acts chapter 10, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, it seems, would be John. There's a special uh, awareness on the part of John and he just can't get over how much Jesus loves him and he thinks he'll also mention James, Paul does. And this is evidently the Lord's half-brother who at one time was an unbeliever, John 7, 1 through 5, but Acts 1, 13 through 14 speaks of his being present early on in the book of Acts. This morning it was suggested that the conversion of Saul is a powerful apologetic proof of the truth of the gospel. So is the conversion of James, the Lord's half-brother. Imagine how much pride both of them had to eat to come to Christ. And now James is one of the leaders, one of the pillars of the early church. Evidently, this is the James who wrote the book of James later on in our New Testament. He is the James who has a leading role in the Jerusalem meeting in Acts chapter 15. That's one of the interesting things about this chapter. You look at the events of Acts 15 and what was said by the early leaders of the church concerning circumcision and various aspects of the law and things uh, uh, that were bloody, etc. and the old law system. And when do the events of Acts, uh, of Galatians 2 rather, occur? Do they occur prior to the events of Acts 15? Are they simultaneous with the events of Acts 15? Or does Galatians 2 occur after Acts 15? Well, there's a lot of ink that has been spilled over the years dealing with that. And thankfully, 
our eternal salvation doesn't rest on it. But my opinion, notice I said my opinion, is that the events of Galatians 2 seem to best fit Acts 11, 27 and following. There are very wise, smart brethren who would differ with me there. And I don't take anything away from them. But you know what? There are some things that we don't have to know all the specifics to appreciate what's being said and done. This is one of them. While I think it fits Acts 11, so that would mean that this event is prior to the events of Acts 15. By a relatively short time. And I would take the position that the book of Galatians is likely the earliest letter of Paul that we have. But salvation doesn't depend on that, mine or yours. Now what salvation does depend on is what's being dealt with in Galatians 2, especially verses 6 through 10. As he visits with these men, Peter, James, and John, what they discover is this. They believe in the same message, the same gospel. The singularity of the gospel. They believe in the singularity of the gospel. There is one faith, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. How they are going about getting the message to others is a little bit different. Peter is especially uh, dealing with those of the circumcision. Those who are Jews or Jewish proselytes. Paul especially is dealing with Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles, Acts 9, 15 through 16. What that tells us is this. People may proclaim the identically same gospel and yet have different focuses. And we can differ on focus, but we cannot differ on message. They also agreed on the same God. The Lord Jesus Christ, Galatians 1, 1 through 5, the Father and the Spirit about whom we read significantly in this book. As mentioned earlier, the Godhead reveals the Bible and the Bible reveals the Trinity. We have to accept both. Also equipping... The same God was blessing the work of both Peter and Paul. Souls were coming to the Lord. And notice that they have the same love and heart. The same love and heart for God and for souls. Peter, James, and John basically say to Paul and Paul to them, keep on doing what you're doing. We're on the same page as far as the message of God is concerned. Only make sure that you're diligent, they say, to remember the poor, which I was only too ready to do. Keep following me now. I am so glad that Peter, James, and John, 
and Paul did not let personal differences in focus fracture the fellowship of the early church. We must be careful not to allow personal differences to do that today. We fight for the truth and we fight for a healthy biblical view of fellowship in the truth. Scene number three, look at verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2. And what this is, brothers and sisters, is this. The gospel of second chances. Everyone needs a second chance unless we die as soon as we come out of the water. True? The gospel is a gospel that affords us second chances. Verses 11 through 14 that Scott read for us. And notice that some come from James purportedly. Galatians 2.12, the same James that seems that Paul has just spoken with in the verses 6 through 10. But some seem to have come from James and they've come to Antioch and they are propagating the necessity of circumcision and observance of various aspects of the law. And when it comes to fellowship at the table of God's people, Peter caves in to the pressure of these teachers. And as a result is guilty of prejudice and racism against Gentiles who evidently have come to Christ. And not just that, brothers and sisters, it also says you've got, you've got an apostle. He certainly knew better. He's the one that did the teaching in Acts 10 to Cornelius in his house. He is the one that later on, if my chronology of things is anywhere close to the truth, in Acts 15, comes down front and center where he needs to about where Gentile Christians should be in the church. We can't impose circumcision on them. We cannot impose various aspects of the law on them. Can't do it. You know what that tells me? Sometimes mighty good people can get caught up in what is mighty wrong. And I'd like to say this as kindly as I can. If an inspired apostle can do it, you can. If it can happen to an inspired apostle where they are... What, see, what you do matters and sometimes it matters even more than what you say and what we do influences others so much so that Mr. Encouragement himself sees Peter and others kind of withdrawing and not being around these Gentile brethren even Barnabas is carried away with the prejudice 
And what Paul calls this is this, hypocrisy. He says he stood condemned in this behavior. He says it's not right. And Paul stands up against Peter face to face because Peter was wrong. You talk about some backbone. Not only that, you talk about love. Because that could have caused the people of God to go off on the ungodly issue of Gentile Christians out of necessity needed to be circumcised. And Paul says, no way. And what you're doing is influencing others. I'd say it was one of those awkward moments in the early church. I believe I've sat in for a few elders' meetings and men's business meetings like that kind of through the years. Somewhat awkward. But here is something else. Evidently, Peter and Barnabas are immediately humbled and touched by the wrongness of their behavior. And here is something that's so significant. Listen, Seth. You never read a Paul mentioning this incident in the rest of Scripture. You never read of Peter mentioning this incident in the rest of Scripture. You never read of Barnabas mentioning this incident in the rest of Scripture. There was such humble heart and desire to be pleasing to the Lord and the oneness of the gospel that when it was over, it was over. Wouldn't it be great if it worked out that way every time in the body of Christ? Wouldn't it? Follow me now to verses 15 through 18. The gospel and righteousness. The gospel and God's righteousness. Think Romans 1, 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. Romans 1.16 In studying Galatians, you will find that it has a great deal in common with Romans. But here is a difference that's big. Romans is a lot longer and tends to be systematic and thematic and very detailed, very comprehensive. Galatians is controversial and polemic. Because everything is happening in the early days and it's hurting the church. That's a good distinction to keep in mind. 
When you look at verses 15 through 18, quickly, I will summarize what the passage is dealing with. First of all, works do not justify. Works do not justify. Now, it's true he's talking about works of the law or works that are done as the basis or the foundation or the grounds of our salvation. Nobody's going to be justified by those works. Second point. We are justified by the cross of Christ. We are justified by the cross of Christ. Third truth from Galatians 2, 15 through 18. The Bible repeatedly takes faith to be humble, loving response to God's grace and His will. The Bible repeatedly takes faith to be humble, loving response to God's will and trust and faith. Now, the final scene, verses 19 through 21, look in your Bibles. The gospel and the cross. Paul talks about dying to the law. And the reason he talks about dying to the law is this. The law of Moses could convict one of sin and show that we're sinners. But no one kept the law of Moses perfectly until Jesus came. The problem was in man's inability to keep the law. The same thing is true with the law principle. Nobody can look at law as being the foundation or basis or ground of their salvation. We have to look to Jesus and the grace of God and our trust in Him. We have to. Or it is a distortion of the gospel. Now that doesn't mean that obedience is unimportant. It doesn't mean it's not essential. But it means, it means we have to look at it as the response of faith to God rather than the ground of our being right. We're made right by what Jesus did and our loving devotion to Him. When you look at these verses, the cross ought to motivate us in evangelism and in the area of conversion. I have frequently said from this pulpit that the preeminence and greatness of God and who He is and what He is like should be the motivation for every area of this congregation's work. The pulpit, the Bible classes, everything. It is possible to emphasize a form of evangelism and a form of conversion where God is sort of left out. The plan of salvation must be mentioned. But who God is and what God is like needs to be dealt with prior to the plan of salvation. Every aspect, our Bible classes, everything 
revolves around God and the relationship He wants to have with us. That's going to be true when you look at discipleship. I love this part. You know, we talk about Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's all about discipleship. That is all about day-to-day Christianity. What role does God really play in our conversion? And secondly, what role does God really have in our everyday life? Are we out of step with the God of the gospel? Third. Look at verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ died in vain. This has to do with justification and salvation. And I'll take you right back to Galatians 1 as we conclude tonight. Look at verses 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What an awesome book Galatians is. Because it repeatedly reminds us of the need for the cross of Christ. Thanks for listening. We're going to sing our song of encouragement. And what we are asking you to do tonight, if you have not already, is to humbly, lovingly come to Jesus in devotion because of what he has done in his grace to save you at the cross through faith, repentance, and baptism, immersion in water for the forgiveness of one's sins, one can be added to the precious church of Jesus Christ. I don't want to be part of any other church. Do you? There's a lot of churches in this town. But are the churches messing with the gospel? And are they in step with the truth of the gospel? Those are two questions we shouldn't just think about when we think of other churches. We ought to think about here. At West Side, too. Let us stand and sing.